Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today is episode 27, the effect of opioid versus non-opioid medications on pain-related function in patients with chronic back or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain, also known as the SPACE Randomized Clinical Trial. So I want to talk about this trial today because it's made a pretty big splash in the way we treat our patients with osteoarthritis. Whether or not to give opioids has become very controversial lately, with some people saying that we've created an opioid epidemic by overprescribing this class of medications, and others saying that, hey, they work pretty well for some patients. If our goal is to help our patients, perhaps the right thing to do is to prescribe opioids and try to get people off within a reasonable amount of time. Now, this trial wanted to assess the question of using opioids or using non-opioids over a one-year period to see which resulted in better control of pain and which resulted in more adverse events. It's a very relevant question for all of us, and I'm glad that this trial was done. That being said, it was also a very flawed trial, and I would say that the take-home message can't be fit in 140 characters. So I think we all basically know the background, so let's get right into the methods. This was conducted at the Minneapolis Veterans Affairs Institution, so in a sense it was a single institution study. That being said, there's 62 VA primary care clinics that were involved from June 13 to December 15, so it was a pretty broad effort. Now, this was a randomized controlled trial in the sense that there were two groups and you're randomized to go into one of them. However, it was also a pragmatic study. What do they mean by pragmatic? Well, a lot of patients from a diverse background got into it, diverse in the context of the VA, which we all know is a somewhat constrained demographic population. The medication regimens were flexible. They didn't just pit one opioid against one non-opioid. They pitted two strategies against each other. And finally, non-pharmacologic interventions were acceptable within the trial. So it wound up being kind of a dirty design that also reflects to some degree the way we actually practice. Now to get into the trial, you had to have back pain or knee pain or hip pain that was moderate to severe despite analgesic use. You also had to have chronic pain. So this is patients who had pain nearly every day for six months or more. Patients were excluded if they had contraindications to therapy or a limited life expectancy, or if they had been on long-term opioid therapy already. So this is kind of a new start trial, patients who weren't already on long-term opioids being given them to see if they helped or being given non-opioid therapy to see if that helped. Patients with severe depression or PTSD were not excluded because these patients often receive opioids in practice. I like that, but it leads to a problem later on when you see what these people were allowed to get. So randomization was stratified by the primary pain diagnosis, which I like. That basically means that you were randomized to receive one of two strategies, but they tried to make sure that the same amount of people were randomized into both sides of the back pain, both sides of the knee pain, and both sides of the hip pain. Randomization was, however, not blind. The pharmacist who prescribed the medicines knew which group the patients were in, the patients knew which group they were in, and the physicians knew which group they were in. The outcome assessor was blind, so that's good, but for all intents and purposes, this was an open-label study of two distinct treatment regimens. What were those two regimens? In the opioid group, you would start with oxycodone and immediate release. Patients escalated to sustained-release morphine and sustained-release oxycodone, and if that didn't work, people got a fentanyl patch. Both second and third line regimens were allowed to have oxy-IR interspersed for acute pain. I think that's a pretty reasonable opioid regimen. Those are all opioids that we use commonly in practice. By definition, they had to avoid things like Norco or Vicodin that also contain Tylenol. Now, the non-opioid regimen is complicated. 
The first-line therapies were NSAIDs and Tylenol, which makes sense to me. I do think the NSAIDs work quite a bit better than Tylenol, so I could have seen them designing this a little bit differently where NSAIDs were the second-line therapy, but it's not unreasonable to do it the way they did. Now, if you failed those first-line therapies, you escalated to what they called adjuvant therapy. So that was things like amitriptyline, gabapentin, and topicals like lidocaine. Now, I think that's a reasonable second-line therapy, and those are also non-opioid medications. But you can see already that patients are starting to get kind of an integrated menagerie approach to pain in the non-opioid group, whereas the opioid group just got opioids. And then last, if you failed the first two steps in the non-opioid group, you could get things like Cymbalta and Lyrica, which that's kind of cheating in a way because Cymbalta is going to treat depression, whereas theoretically opioids won't. And you could get Tramadol. Now, I know we don't treat Tramadol like we treat other opioids, but let's be real. It's essentially an opioid. I could see someone arguing that it's an SNRI, but it binds to the mu opioid receptor of the neuron, both pre- and postsynaptically. If you look at the Wikipedia part article on Tramadol, it literally says, Tramadol, sold under the brand name Ultram, is an opioid pain medication. Now granted, Wikipedia isn't a perfect source for information, but I think it's hard to say that Tramadol isn't to some degree an opioid. Moving on though, before randomization, they did an interesting thing where they asked patients to state their preference for which treatment group they'd be in. Well, that was kind of creative. They also asked about their expectations for improvement, and then they did a number of outcome measures throughout the study. The main was a seven-item brief pain inventory inference scale. A secondary outcome was pain intensity as measured by the four-item brief pain inventory severity scale. Both scales went from zero to 10, and a minimum clinical difference was somewhere around 0.7 points. Primary adverse outcome was patient-reported checklist of 19 medication-related symptoms. We'll talk more about this later, as it's an important limitation to the study. So secondary health outcomes were also the veterans ran 12-item health survey, disability questionnaires, PHQ-8s, generalized anxiety sort of measures. There's like almost a dozen in here. Basically, they checked a lot of different patient-reported outcomes. Note that there's really no objective outcome measures here. All of this is patient-reported outcomes, including the adverse events. Again, going to be a big limitation of the study. The statistics were all more or less appropriate, so let's talk about who got into this trial. Reminder, this was done at the Veterans Affairs. Patients were around 55. They were mostly white men, something like 80 to 90%. A lot of them were retired, including more retired patients in the non-opioid group. The main diagnosis was back pain, 65%, versus knee and hip pain, which was 35%. So it was mostly a back pain trial. One in five smoked. And, and this is important, in the opioid group, 21% thought the opioids were preferred and 19 preferred non-opioids whereas in the non-opioid group of patients, 37% preferred opioids. That's a 16-point difference in the preferences before. It's unfortunate the randomization failed on that critical metric, because I think that introduces more bias into the study. That being said, let's get on to the results. Out of 265 enrolled patients, 25 withdrew, so 240 were randomized. There was some dropout at every visit, which happened in three-month intervals, but more or less a reasonable number of patients made it to the end of the trial, and the dropout wasn't substantially different between the two groups. In the primary outcome of pain and health, there was no significant difference between the two groups. That being said, the pain intensity was actually noted to be significantly better in the non-opioid group. Now that sounds impressive, but let's talk about what that means. In the pain-related function, the primary outcome, in the opioid group, on a 10-point scale, at baseline, 
people reported a f- level of 5.4, and at 12 months, they reported 3.4. So the opioids worked. Now, there's no difference between the groups because at baseline, the non-opioid group reported a pain of 5.5 on a 10-point scale, and that went down to 3.3. So at the end of the trial, you had 3.4 versus 3.3, which was essentially the same. Now, I'd like to point out that people still reported pain. In both groups, the average difference was about two points on a 10-point scale, which is something, but it's certainly not a resolution of pain entirely. If you parse this further, only 60% of patients improved by 30%. It's kind of depressing when you think about it. 40% of patients in this trial didn't really have their pain improve at all. Now, regarding this pain intensity score that I said was significantly different, it wasn't that significantly different. So the pain intensity in the opioid group was 5.4, and that went to 4.0 at 12 months. In the non-opioid group, it was 5.4, and it went to 3.5. So the absolute difference on a 10-point scale in pain intensity between the two groups was statistically significant, but wasn't really impressive, a 0.5 difference on a 10-point scale. Like I said, they had a lot of secondary measures. Most of them were not significant, and I'm not going to talk about them. But the GAD-7 anxiety measure was statistically significantly different. It looked like the patients in the non-opioid group had more anxiety at the end of the trial than the people in the opioid group. So in that respect, the opioids were kind of favored as far as anxiety is concerned. I thought that was pretty interesting, actually, especially considering that some of the patients in the non-opioid group could get things like Cymbalta that would theoretically help with anxiety. I think this does probably speak to the ability of opioids to influence anxiety levels. So in that sense, that was some success. Now, they also did a number of patient-reported outcomes, disability, fatigue, etc. None of them were statistically significantly different. However, in the adverse outcomes measure, the opioid group had significantly more medication-related symptoms over 12 months. Again, that was significant at a value of 0.03. But again, this was a checklist from 0 to 19, and it wasn't terribly impressive. The opioid group had a rating of 2.6, and the non-opioid group had a rating of 1.8. Certainly, there is more adverse events in the opioid group. I'm not sure if that's a terribly meaningful difference. These results in mind, the authors go on to conclude that treatment with opioids was not superior to treatment with non-opioid medications for improving pain-related function over 12 months. They went on to say that the results do not support the initiation of opioid therapy for moderate to severe chronic back or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain. I think for a lot of physicians who prefer not to prescribe opioids, this trial was music to their ears. We have a randomized controlled trial that showed that opioids were no better and had more side effects, which is how I think a lot of us felt from the beginning. Before we get too carried away, there are some important caveats to this trial. I'm going to go down the list and it's going to take a hot minute. The pain intensity scale favored the non-opioid treatment, but like I said, I don't really know what an 0.5 difference means. There's also a limitation to the applicability of this trial because on average, patients had a score of 5 and change on the pain scale, and very few, less than 5%, had pain greater than 7. So these are patients who are in some pain, but not a whole lot of pain. So if you have a patient who's saying they're in 10 out of 10 pain, this trial does not really reflect that patient. More importantly, their adverse outcomes measurement did not include GI bleeds, AKI, MI, or CVA. So essentially, the adverse outcomes measurement assessed things like sleep, fatigue, headaches, incontinence, sexual problems, dizziness. It didn't cover the kind of adverse events that we're really scared of with NSAIDs. Now, in defense of the trial, it wasn't really large enough to pick up on those relatively rare outcomes, but I do quibble with the fact that the major reasons we avoid NSAIDs were not actually assessed in the trial itself. 
moving forward, this trial was also not blinded. Now, it can be hard to trust a trial that was not blinded. It's doubly hard to trust a trial that was not blinded and used, used patient-reported outcomes. Say their outcome was death or in-stage renal disease. You don't really fake those. And even though there is a placebo response that can change those outcomes, I think it's a little less suspicious than when you're doing an unblinded trial that also uses patient-reported outcomes. You can imagine the doctors in this trial having quite a vested interest in showing that non-opioids were better. Maybe they uptitrated more quickly. Maybe they added therapies more quickly. Maybe they were more likely to refer to non-pharmacologic interventions. Maybe they didn't sell the opioids as hard as they sold things like ibuprofen or meloxicam. For a variety of reasons, the fact that the physicians and the patients knew which group was which and then filled out subjective reporting measures is a huge issue for this trial. Even further, the randomization was not entirely successful. Before randomization, the patients in the non-opioid group actually preferred opioids as compared to the patients who were in the opioid group. Now, the authors make the contention that this would have favored the opioids, which I can see what they're saying. The kind of person who was in the non-opioid group was predisposed to think it wasn't going to work, so you'd expect that they would actually have less efficacy. I think that's relatively compelling, but I can easily imagine this cutting the other way. The people who were randomized to the non-opioid group were less likely to believe in the therapy because they were more likely to think opioids worked, so they did a whole bunch of other stuff. Maybe they went and did Tai Chi and picked up yoga, and for that reason, they wound up doing better. I see what the authors are saying when they try to minimize this concern, but it's a difference, and when you have a failure of randomization like that, you always have to question the results. I've harped on this a couple times. This was done at the VA. The VA is its own special population, and it may not be generalizable to some of our patients in other settings. And last but not least, they gave people tramadol in the non-opioid group. I know, I know, it's not a classic opioid, but it is still an opioid. 11% of the patients escalated all the way up to get tramadol, so at least 1 in 10 patients in the non-opioid group ultimately wound up having a drug that affected their opioid receptors. The authors helpfully reanalyzed the data, excluding these patients, and showed that there was still a statistically important difference between the groups, but now we're breaking randomization again, and we're cutting out the people who wound up being really sick from the group that got non-opioid therapy. No matter how you cut it, I think tramadol being in there was a little bit of a peculiar decision. All that being said, the results of this trial show that a non-opioid strategy had less kind of softish adverse events than an opioid strategy, resulted in a lower pain intensity, and was non inferior in regards to pain-related function. So how has this changed my practice? As I did before, I try to avoid prescribing opioids unless they're very necessary. And if I do prescribe opioids, I try to do them for just a short period of time. This trial has made the case for non-opioids a lot easier to make in a clinical setting. You can say with a relatively high degree of confidence that prescribing opioids does not work better than prescribing non-opioids as long as we use an integrated approach, try a couple different things, and escalate as necessary. I do think that a broad statement like that is more or less supported by the trial. It had flaws, but it was a really good attempt at a very challenging question, and we have to commend the authors for pulling it off. That's all for this week. Be sure to tune in next week when we go to yet another flawed randomized controlled trial, this one addressing the management of gout and whether or not a nurse clinic, plus some stuff, was any better than usual care, usual care not being what we usually do here in the United States. Thanks again for tuning in and have a great week.